Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. This month's episodes of Going There focus on depression and are specially presented by Publicis Health, the world's leading healthcare communications network. Publicis Health envisions a world where people are equipped and motivated to take control of their health, and they believe there is no health without mental health. To learn more about Publicis Health's mental health initiatives, visit www.publicishealth. That's www.publisishealth.com slash mental health. Today, we are talking with four-time Grammy-nominated musician, singer-songwriter, actress, author, and philanthropist, Jewel. You may know Jewel from her enduring hit songs such as Who Will Save Your Soul, Foolish Games, Hands, and You Were Meant For Me. And Jewel just recently dropped her first album in seven years called Freewheelin' Woman. One review of the album said that the album is an unmistakable decree. Jewel is back. And Jewel has co-created the Inspiring Children Foundation, whose mission is to create a community of healing, growth, and meaning for children as they become leaders in the world. And within that foundation, Jewel launched the Never Broken program, aimed specifically at teaching children skills to help them cope with struggles on their mental health journey. Check out all of Jewel's music and philanthropy at jeweljk.com. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the most difficult issues we face on our mental health journey is that oftentimes when we experience mental illness, such as depression, anxiety, or addiction, there is such a powerful feeling that our emotions and behaviors are permanent, that if we feel depressed, panicked, traumatized, or unable to control unhealthy behaviors, that we are in effect doomed to that state of being forever. And unfortunately, part of what makes mental illness so painful and damaging is that we are often regularly in the grips of our emotions and behaviors. And it's understandable that we simply can't imagine ever feeling differently or better. But Jewel's approach to mental health focuses on what she calls the concept of emotional impermanence, that we are dynamic and ever-changing, and that means that our emotions and behaviors can ultimately change as well. She describes a story where as a child, she was watching the ocean and seeing the tide go out and knowing that at some point it would in fact come back in. And she used this as a metaphor and inspiration to break the hopelessness she felt about ever feeling less anxious or depressed. And this concept of emotional impermanence has become one of the foundations that she uses on her mental health journey. And Jewel talks about a technique that she calls 
buckling herself in to try and weather the difficult times and become curious about what she can learn from her emotions and behaviors rather than just trying to avoid or suppress her experience. Now, as we progress through this season of going there, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions that you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Jewel has to say. Hey, Jewel, welcome to Going There. Hi. So one of the things we like to start off with is a song that you wrote that feels particularly representative of your mental health journey. Two come to mind. I'm a Gemini and it's allowed. One would be the very first song I wrote. That's Who Will Save Your Soul. I wrote that when I was 16 because I really wanted to hitchhike through Mexico for spring break, like all parents hope their children do at some point. And you can tell I was really grappling with the idea of, well, for me, nature versus nurture. I never put that in the lyric, but this idea of who will save your soul if you won't save your own. You know, how am I going to participate in my life to direct my life? I moved out at 15. I had a, you know, emotional abusive, physically abusive childhood, moving out at 15 knew that it was very possible that I had already been wired for failure. You know, that my nurture was so bad that it might have messed with my ability to live life according to perhaps what my nature is. You know, in modern terms, we would just sort of basically say that trauma might have changed my personality and altered it to the point that I may not know what I would have been like without that trauma. And so set up kind of on this mission of like, wait a minute, that's a really depressing way to go through life at 15, thinking that I had already learned an emotional language that would lead to very bad outcomes. And so trying to learn a new emotional language became my life's mission. You know, I was ambitiously trying to understand if happiness was a learnable skill or a teachable skill. And wanting to feel like somehow it was up to me, right? It was up to my myself if I could think my way through it and feel my way through it. And so Who'll Save Your Soul really deals with that, you know, the looking at society, looking at how we're constantly wanting to give other people the power when we need to probably or I needed to probably be saying, no, what if what if nobody's coming for me? What if I am? What if nobody owes me happiness? What if I owe myself happiness? What am I willing to do to save myself? And that was the impetus behind Who'll Save Your Soul. And then Hands, I would say, is the other one that really had to do with like not being a victim. I was shoplifting. I was homeless. I was doing a lot of bad shit. And realizing again, just on this other level of, you know, nobody's coming for me. Like, I got to be the white knight on the horse. What am I willing to do about it? And, and, and realizing my hands, my behavior really was up to me and would I take accountability for that? And that ended up changing my life. And that, that's such a powerful message because I think that oftentimes we're so mixed about that issue because it would feel so wonderful to have someone who can actually come in and save us, who's someone who can actually come in and, and do that for us. And it's so intoxicating and seductive in some ways, that idea. But ultimately, 
I think you're right. We are the only ones who can do it on our mental health journey. And even agreed, even, um, you know, cue every guru that ever took advantage of anyone. I mean, it's the perfect recipe for, uh, not that all gurus do. I'm just saying it's that mentality that leads to emptying ourselves out and putting all of our salvation on something outside of us. We learn from people. We should be learning from teachers. That's a great thing. But even, you know, biblically, Jesus can tell you, don't give in to fear, but he can't tell you how to do it. You have to figure out in your own psyche, in your own body, what to do with fear and how you as an individual are going to navigate that. Buddha can point toward, you know, these things which are true, but you still have to be the one that has to figure out how to take that mantle on and convert those things. What I really like about that is that I think sometimes, unfortunately, people will look at the structure, social structures, whatever in our world, and kind of almost use that as an as an opportunity, not necessarily intentionally, but they'll wind up sort of stagnating, like sort of like the idea that, hey, I will put my my faith or I'll put the responsibility in something else. And I'll just kind of stay where I'm at and hope that it works. And I think what you're really talking about is more of an ongoing dynamic evolution that is, again, starting with that fundamental premise, like other people can point the direction, but I have to keep doing the work. Yeah. You know, nothing's more seductive than blaming other people for why you feel bad. And that's not to say it isn't true. You know, it's not to say, yeah, I mean, I had every excuse to kill myself, to give up, but why martyr yourself in your own life to rob yourself of your own happiness? There's no power in it. Like really, what is the end goal? And I had to get very, very logical in a weird way about, do I actually want to be happy or do I just want to say I want to be happy? And then I want to complain about all the reasons I can't be happy. At the end of the day, I was like, nobody cares, Jewel. Like your mom doesn't care. Nobody cares. Like do you want to be happy? Do I want to be happy? What am I willing to do about it? And so I was able to start to like, look at all my behaviors as moving toward accountability and moving away from it. Stealing was just moving away from it. It was a way for me to check out. It was a way to medicate. Um, it made me feel powerful. It was all kinds of did great things for me. At the end of the day, it was me being a victim. And feeling justified, you know, it was me against them. It was me against society. It was me taking back from society what society owed me. I wasn't entitled to anything. I wasn't entitled to happiness. I obviously wasn't even entitled to a happy childhood. I do believe that happiness is your birthright. And I do believe that if you want that, you have to fight for that. That has to be your responsibility that you're willing to take on. And that means you have to look in the mirror and go, what am I going to do about it? Yeah, I have a lot of odds against me, but what am I going to do about it? Yeah, there's whole structures built to help me not succeed, but what am I going to do about it? Do you mind me asking just when you were talking about that time when you felt like you didn't have hope? Are, are you comfortable talking about what that experience was like and then sort of what steps you took to bring yourself out of that? Yeah, I can think of several times, you know, I think the first instance for me, I can't remember how old I was, but I'm going to say 12-ish, and I was in Alaska sitting on a cliff, and we had big tides in Alaska, and I was deeply depressed, and in Alaska, the tides are huge, they go out like a mile, it takes a long time, and then it turns around and it starts to come back in, and I sat there for a good 12 hours, maybe, nothing's worse than the feeling of utter sheer 
hopelessness, that there's not a single thing you could do to affect anything ever getting better, right? That's a very unsustainable thing to have. And for some reason, watching the tide go out made me realize, even though it was very slow, the tide came back in. Sounds very simple and very dumb. But I had a eureka moment that physics is physics. Everything changes. Everything in the entire cosmos, seen and unseen, the constant is change. And so the absurd arrogance that I could sit there and think I was the only thing in all the physics that wouldn't change, that my emotion would be permanent was actually absurd. What an absurd thought because it was anti-nature and luckily I grew up in nature. And so it was a real incongruous thing. I was like, I'm having a thought that's actually anti-nature. And that gave me a lot of hope because I realized everything changes if you give it enough time. You know, that's the caveat. Am I willing to give it enough time? And so I call it buckling myself in. I realized sometimes the tide is just out. And I say that to myself to this day. Sometimes the tide is just out. But physics guarantees it's going to come back in. I use this with my son a lot. You know, he's 11, you know, big feelings, lots of things starting to shift in his life. And I don't always know how it's going to get better. And it is intense what he's going through. And I can go, this is intense. You're dealing with something really intense. I don't know how it's going to change, but I do know it is. And so while one of you, one part of you can be engaged in just the, the intensity of it, you can start to afford another part of you getting a little bit curious about, I wonder how this will change. I wonder what the mechanism will be. Maybe I can participate. And so that's one instance, for instance, um, and something we teach in our youth foundation is just this idea, you know, you, you studied psychology but in, you know, two-year-olds, there's this phenomenon, psychological development uh, called object impermanence. It's why peekaboo works, you know, you put, cover your hand and the baby is like, oh, they disappeared. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 their brain is not developed to the point where they can comprehend this. Well, I don't think we're taught emotional impermanence, if that's a good correlation. And so what I learned that day with the tide is it's not permanent. Yeah, if you were to feel this way forever, I get it. I get why you'd want to check out. That's an intolerable situation. But because of physics, we know that's impossible. You have to buckle yourself in and you get to go learn a new tool. And you actually can start to help shift this and direct this. And that begins to feel like a much more promising uh, thing, especially if you have somebody that you've locked arms with, you know, that, that is your partner in going, let's figure it out. You know, yeah, this doesn't work. We're going to make sure it works. One of the most powerful things that I've heard you say in the past is that you use your emotions in, in some cases, you talk about fear almost as either an alarm system or uh, I don't know if you use the term guard dog or if I just thought that. And you almost were saying like, hey, these feelings are a conversation that we are having. It's not a sign that I'm broken because I'm picking up things in the environment that are problematic for me. And I'm kind of curious because I think that most one, if 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 that if I'm remembering that correctly and two. I think a lot of people feel like they have two choices. Either they blame others and therefore they're helpless or they blame themselves and then they have some kind of power. 
But a lot of times the answer is, well, other people are actually responsible to some extent for what's happening to you, but it's your responsibility to get better. And I'm kind of curious just if, if that makes sense to you. And if so, how you balance that? Yeah, um, you did get the the concept pretty right. For a short version, and for anybody that doesn't know me, my mom, I ended up broken in debt and uh, when I was 34. And everything that my mom, who was my manager, had told me not only about money, but about a lot of my life had been false. And so as a 30 something year old trying to wake up to that type of betrayal from something that close, right, a parent, and having to go back through your entire story of your life and put together which parts were true, which part weren't difficult. And it was during this time that the prospect of fixing what felt broken me was incredibly overwhelming. And I remembered this allegory of the golden statue. I can't remember where the story comes from. Very briefly, a village has a statue made of solid gold. A warring tribe is coming. They cover the golden statue in mud. The war comes and goes. The village is so enraptured in trauma, they forget to even think about the statue. Generations pass. The value of the statue has been obscured generationally. One day there's a huge storm. There's a child playing at the feet of the statue and the storm and the water begin to crumble off some of that mud and you see the statue is solid gold. For some reason, this image, this story comes to me at my most desperate moment. When I was trying to recover from what happened with my mom, I didn't go see a psychologist because I, my brain had been really messed with and I didn't want anybody to touch it. And so I was trying to find my way through it. And for some reason, that allegory just struck me of like, oh, wait a minute. Like the gold statue is always the gold statue. A soul can't be broken. It's not a teacup or a chair. What if I came from the position that I am not broken? I don't have to fix myself. I have to do a very loving archaeological dig through the layers of mud and pain and tears and trauma to get back to my nature. So it came back to that idea of nature versus nurture. The mud was the nurture. The nature is the gold statue. So looking at that as a new world order sort of, and then saying, how do I know mud from gold? How do I know self from other, right? An absorbed uh, thought that I confused for myself. I decided to use my anxiety as my compass. I was willing to suppose that if a thought, feeling, or action made me anxious, it wasn't genuinely in line with my nature. I was willing to say that because I didn't think the entire universe would be here to just trick me you know, where my own nature would make me sick, right? That's, that's cruel. So I was just willing to suppose that level of trickery was not in the fabric of the universe. Maybe evolutionary anxiety was actually here to help us communicate with the fact that when we consume a thought, feeling, or action that doesn't agree with us, we get sick, we get anxious. So then my anxiety became my best friend because I was able to deprogram brainwashing basically and years of trauma and all kinds of stuff nurture i was able to use my anxiety to go oh that's making me anxious that doesn't agree with me what was i thinking feeling or doing i'd write it down and then i'd say what else could i be thinking feeling or doing that doesn't make me anxious and i'm going to suppose that that thought feeling or action is actually aligned with my nature 
Well, it just turns out my entire life made me sick. <laughs> a lot about my job, a lot about my relationships, a lot about what I was thinking. And again, that's where that rubber meets the road. Was I willing to stop consuming the things that made me sick, that made me anxious? Was I willing to get rid of the mud? And was I willing to build a relationship with understanding what was the gold statue as it were underneath? And that's kind of the best quick explanation I can give of using your anxiety as an ally. Um, and then I forgot the second half of what you asked. I did too, to be honest. I really liked what you said. So I got kind of lost in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So let me, so let me ask you this. Cause I hear what you're saying about the golden statue concept, but then I'm also very taken with the concept of change that you were talking about with the tides. So how, how do you put together the idea that there's something that we can take about ourselves? That's solid, that, that we can work on, that we can rely on to some extent, but then see change as something that's constantly happening, but not think that that's going to obliterate us in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Now I remember what you were, you were asking. It was yeah, right in line with that. One of the hardest things to come to terms with is the fact that most of us participate in self-care, psychology, spirituality, as a very clever form of control, thinking that if we participate in it with it perfectly enough, we will avoid all future pain, <laughs> right? It's a weird defense strategy to try and, you know, incredibly performative saying, if I execute all my skills perfectly, or I love God perfectly, or I understand psychology perfectly, I can avoid any more pain. Turns out you can't. I and mean, that's a really sucky thing to comes to terms with. How do you go forward? I mean, how the hell do you stomach <laughs> <laughs> the idea that natural disasters happen and they happen to our personal lives. So I think it's a beautiful thing to think about. I don't know if a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I'm really glad you brought it up. Here's the way I've come to think about it. You don't get to choose how life changes. You only get to choose how it changes you. And that's just a good, simple sentence that is generally incredibly true. Bad things happen people go rogue. People don't always make the best choices, me included. Some of it is just, you know, let's say that there's five primal powers loose in the world, life, death, birth, decay, and creation. And that's, let's call it physics. Let's call it God. I don't care. These five primal powers are at work all the time around us and inside of us. And so things are dying and things are decaying and things are being created. And we live in a world where we don't get to control those. What's our world obsessed with, though? Controlling those. It's all anti-aging. It's all speeding up how a tomato ripens. It's all controlling variables. We're obsessed with a coping mechanism of trying to control the uncontrollable. And it's an absolute sheer and utter waste of time. But it makes us feel a little more powerful in a really vulnerable situation, which is just being alive. I, for myself, started to realize, like, why am I wasting all my energy pretending I can control the uncontrollables when I actually do get to choose how I participate and how it changes me. And so beginning to let go of hypervigilance, very hard for me. My favorite is hypervigilance. It's my binky. Letting go of trying to predict every bad thing, letting go of doubt, doubting every bad thing, and me trying to poke a hole in every solid thing around me to go, are you real? Are you real? Are you really real? 
what if I push here? Do you still seem real? Right. I mean, this is how I tried to protect myself. And it makes sense. I get, I really get why I did it. It just wasn't a successful strategy. So the much more to me, successful strategy is going, all right, I have to come to terms with the fact there are some wild and radical energies. I don't get any say over the more I heal, the more I stop contributing to the crazy drama, right? That kind of is within my wheelhouse. The more I heal, the less dramatic, you know, the less toxic people I bring, you know, so that's very worthwhile pursuit of time. And then it's developing a skill set to know, I know I'm only 48 years old and I've already had a lot of terrible things happen. And the odds are something else is going to happen in my life. And I have to stomach that, right? I have to come to terms with being okay with that not investing my time into defense strategies, but instead going, I have developed tools knowing that when something bad happens, I will choose how I, how I change. And I choose to become a more loving, resilient, kind, compassionate person. I refuse to let my life's experiences turn me into a more bitter, hateful, mistrusting, jealous person. And that's my choice. And that's a, that's a, that's plenty of work in a lifetime, you know, to keep choosing (laughs) that hopefully ultimate goal. Yeah. And just to add to that, I think one of the things that I like about how you've framed the concept of broken is that people naturally assume the term broken is something bad. It's something that's purely hurtful, but there's breaking with convention. There's breaking with toxic relationships. There's breaking with you know, just previous ideas that that breaking to some degree is part of growth. And I think that what you're talking about now opens up for that possibility. Whereas if you're always trying to control, you're always trying to avoid things that are uncomfortable, not only does it not work, like you're saying, but you lose that whole opportunity to have a break that might be one of the best things for someone or for yourself developmentally. Yeah. And that's where it comes down to discernment. You know, if you go back to life, death, birth, decay, creation, death is wildly important. You know, you want to let the right thing die. You don't want to resuscitate a really toxic thing forever. So it's having discernment to understand what things should we let die in our life? What things should we let break? Um, Or when death is upon you or a break is upon you, the quicker you get to it, the quicker life happens next. The quicker you get to start to see how to put those pieces back together. And so I think too, like something I've been working on with my son lately is, you know, all of our hearts are destined to be broken. It's what we do with the pieces that make us extraordinary. And so what if life wasn't a soul journey to try and avoid heartbreak? What if we accepted it as kind of the price of admission? We don't know where it's coming from and it sure isn't fun, but What if we got really busy really quick with what am I going to do with these pieces? How am I going to make myself? Am I going to make a wall to try and separate myself from life and say, I quit. I'm not going to participate anymore. Or are we going to try and make something beautiful out of it that still lets us participate in life in a meaningful way? And one of the things that I often will talk about with people with whom I work is that, you know, objectively, every single romantic relationship that you are in is going to end at some point, except for maybe one, you know, maybe if you're lucky on your deathbed, you you have someone that you're looking at who you love and who loves you, but every other relationship 
is going to end. And if the interpretation of all those endings is failure or brokenness or whatever other critical concept, that just can't work because you you there's no nobody can you know kind of surpass that. But this is a situation where what you're describing allows for the the, the actual flow of our life because I think that we put so many in an attempt to control, we put so many judgments on it and everything has to be linear. And it's weird because nobody likes it that way. Nobody likes judging themselves based on this artificial linear path that like five P it's like, it's like kids who were cool in junior high. There was five kids who were cool in junior high and the rest of us felt horrible. And it's like this linear path that we judge ourselves by always makes us miserable. And I feel like what you're talking about, that curiosity that ongoing change, I think it helps protect against that. Yeah. And it's, you know, looking again at framing, you know, what is success in life? That's a huge, broad question. Very individual. What is, what is a successful relationship? If it ends, did it fail? Right. It's kind of what you're asking, which means by definition, you now are in a position of trying to defend and make every relationship last forever, even when it becomes bad for you so that you aren't a failure. Right. So it's tricky. These definitions get tricky. They matter how we frame things matter. I personally have come to believe that all relationships are about evolving and we're in lots of relationships, right? We're in relationships with our children. We're in romantic relationships. We're in relationships with our kids, teachers, friendships. All of life is about connection and being in relationship to, I believe it's being in relationship to nature. And when we take ourselves out of relationship with that nature, we start having disconnection. And you can see where that's led us, you know, as a society, frankly. So I think the point of life is to be in relationship. I think that the point of life is to understand that relationships are here to help us evolve. And I think the point of evolution is a gift. It's a miracle to evolve. It's how we participate in this grand experiment of life and even epigenetics, right? Everything is causing us to evolve. And so I would say success is evolving. And when something is no longer helping us evolve or we are devolving or evolving in a unhealthy way, that might not be love anymore. You know, that I don't believe that is love. I think love causes us to evolve. It inspires us to be the best versions of ourselves. There's a really beautiful Navajo proverb that says love grows corn. Basically, it means that, you know, when it's love because good things grow, it, it doubles life. Love just wants to proliferate and make great things happen. If you're in a relationship where you're told you're loved and nothing's growing and things are painful and hurt, that actually isn't love. That's something else. You have the wrong word. <laughs> it might be codependence. It might be trauma bonding. It might be a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's love, love, grows corn. It should grow goodness and it should help you evolve, which doesn't mean it's easy or comfortable, but you should be evolving. And I think that this is one of the biggest things that people grapple with, because I think most people agree with you that life is so much about connection, but I think that what they naturally assume is that's connection with others. And if that means sacrificing your connection with yourself, connection with a higher power, whether it's God, whether it's nature, whatever that may be for someone, they will do it because they're sort of chasing that external connection. And I, th I think that one of the things that I know I try to do often unsuccessfully and try to get people to do is like, 
what are you going for in a relationship? You know, what is it that you think is going to happen there? You know, people talk about being kind to yourself, doing fun things. And it's like, well, are you doing all of those things with yourself? Are you connecting to yourself? Because that, like you said, like that, you have a certain amount of control over. And in theory, a relationship with someone else would hopefully enhance that or add to that or open that up in different ways. But so many times I think we sacrifice that connection to ourselves or what we view as like you're talking about nature in order to, to chase things that we think are going to be gratifying and we lose ourselves in the process. And then it just feels like we're lost. Yeah, I don't think any entrepreneur would start a business and say, I have no idea what my mission statement is. I have no idea how many resources I'm going to need to allocate every month to make sure that this can grow. Uh, and I'm not going to have a, any type of plan. But we do that with love all the time. We have no idea what our actual hunger is. We have no idea what's actually motivating us to be here in this relationship. Often it's just wounds. <laughs> Often you weren't loved enough by your mom and you're looking for unconditional love. Well, love has conditions. You know, marriage does have conditions. Make no mistakes about it. You're, you have to uphold in meeting needs. And if you quit doing that, it quits being a relationship. It quits living. And so the most important thing I think people can do is make sure that they have a great foundation, which is making sure that those wounds aren't the ones that are driving you and leveraging you, frankly, frankly, into a romantic relationship. We're often leveraged in romance because we have unexamined wounds and hurt. And so you refuse to give up on the relationship because it's basically like being abandoned again by your mom or by your dad and these core wounds. So I think the most freedom, you know, the way to give your romantic life the most chance of success is making sure you you heal, you know, do the work, the best way to have a great relationship with your child, heal, do your own work, heal your relationship with yourself, find somewhere that you can experience a really unconditional love that doesn't have to do with your child being good and doesn't have to do with your spouse, whatever, approving of every single thing you do. So I do think that's the most responsible thing we can do because at the end of the day, we are what we have. It is our inner life that dictates our happiness, even though we keep thinking it's our relationship or our romance or our career that dictates our happiness. So on that point, one of the things that I think many people have found is that one of the first experiences that they had with healing was music, you know, whether it was listening to somebody else's music or playing music, but there's something that a lot of people will describe, you know, you mentioned that thing about you don't want a therapist, someone to like get at your brain, or I don't remember the exact term you used, but we tend to let music in as a way of connecting and often healing. And I'm kind of curious for you, you know, you have had songs that for, I, I can attest as, you know, someone who has listened to your music for several years, that there is a healing quality to it. And I'm kind of curious, who were those artists or what were those songs or albums for you? that maybe provided that connection or it's like, Hey, there's, there's something I'm feeling here. There's wounds that need to be healed. And I'm kind of getting that through the connection to music. Music is really wonderful because it doesn't need permission to enter your soul. Whatever your soul is, it bypasses a bunch of defense mechanisms, ideologies, faiths, religions, you know, political affiliations. It just bypasses it and goes right into your, uh, whatever soul, heart, whatever you want to say. 
it's a cool thing about music. I think that's why music has been around and storytelling um, since the beginning of man. I think it's why mythology and Joseph Campbell's work is so important. There's something primordial to healing. And the more you study indigenous cultures and indigenous healing, even, it was the basis for Jungian psychology. It was the beginning of archetypal work. work. It was going down and into language-free place in your psyche, letting your subconscious talk to you in images and colors and metaphors. It's right where dream interpretation came from. It's from this part of us that knows inherently we have to figure out a way of communicating to something other than our brain. And so it is languageless and it is emotional and it causes you to become emotional and you can't always pinpoint why. And so I think song is still the sort of last stronghold of being able to talk to the subconscious and somehow find a medicine you didn't quite know you needed. I used music to heal myself. Like I really used it to, to be my balm and soothe me or make me feel brave or whatever I needed to do at the time. And it's really an amazing thing that that worked for other people, you know, that my music helped other people the same way it helped me. I was always drawn personally to a uh, story. So I grew up reading um, and I wasn't that musically influenced. Oddly, I was very literary or literature influenced me. And it was always this, you know, the writer that was writing about the, the problems of the quote unquote common man, you know, it was Chekhov and it was Steinbeck and it was Flannery O'Connor and it was Nabokov, you know, that writers that could tune into basically the psychology in such a keen way that it, it opened up someone's psyche. And so my writing has always had kind of a, I, I feel like, or hopefully a very story driven stance. And it's also kind of why I was always trying to get at psychology because that's the kind of writing I liked. So I know it isn't quite a music answer, but those writers radically touched me. Bukowski, you know, reading Bukowski, I was only 14 and, you know, he was a drunk talking about such lecherous things, but he was so heroic and honest, you know, when every other writer was trying to make themselves so, so civilized and intelligent and perfect. He was just like ripping scabs off <laughs> and showing them to the world. And that was so appreciated. It was like, okay, I'm not the only one that, that is struggling to this level um, with this level of feeling of depravity. I liked Anais Nin for the same reason. You know, it was like, she was just willing to talk about some shit other people weren't willing to talk about. And it was so relatable. And so that's why in my writing, I just always tried to take the peel back the curtain, be as honest as I could. Listeners to Going There know that I ask all my guests about the music they've connected with on their mental health journey. Whether in its creation or our enjoyment of it, most of us can relate to using art as a way to cope with mental health struggles and connect with our emotions. Alex von Plato, CEO of Publicis Health, spoke to me about why art functions as such a powerful tool and how important acknowledging and supporting its value is. One of the ways that people will sometimes begin the conversation, you know, you're talking about having a very open and direct conversation is through the arts and creativity, you know, whether expressing something themselves or sharing something and getting a sense like, okay, we we're sharing an openness. And I'm kind of curious just how you feel like engaging in 
uh, you know, kind of artistic activities can help both with depression and anxiety itself, but then also the potential sharing of those kinds of experiences, like what you're talking about, whether it's you or somebody in your family. Yeah, I mean, we see that, you know, people have trouble finding words sometimes. And um, I think there's two aspects to it. One is, it's a way for people to share their feelings, you know, in whether it's poetry or music or any form of art. And I've, I've worked in a lot of areas, not just mental illness, but a lot of illness where art therapy is part of therapy. And it's real. It's, it's, a, it's a real significant therapeutic value. I work around multiple sclerosis. I was just, I was on the board of the Multiple Sclerosis Association and we had a huge art therapy program because we saw that um, it does two things. It gives you a, a, a way to express a lot of feelings and emotions that are hard to articulate and get other people to relate to, but also because it's making and the act of making something, an artistic act of making is therapeutic in and of itself, if not for, for a couple of reasons. One is it your brain, you can't paint or compose or play or music or, or, or write a poem without really fully focusing on it. I mean, it's very hard to intentionally create something art from, from an artistic impulse without more or less fully focusing. Yeah, you can get distracted. Yes, things can happen. But it, 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 it forces you into a sense of focus and, and control. And that, that also um, gives you agency over yourself. So, so they have two benefits. One is it's expression and two, it's agency. In the act of making it, you have more control. And the sense of control and the reflection on that ability to get control and a way to get control, when you're feeling really bad, you have, I mean, this is where you work a lot with musicians. They, musicians can go to their music. It's actually a gift. It's like, a, but it's like prayer. You know, people have a thing to go to and it's their art and it gives them relief it can. It doesn't always. It can. And in that way, I always feel the people who have the, the ability or desire to go and make something that causes them to have that sense of focus and agency, they have another gift that can help them therapeutically that people who don't have that inclination don't have. Some people develop their artistic voice in the context of being ill because they're looking for a relief. Some people have an artistic voice and they find that when they're ill, it helps them. And I think that's, that's like a kind of a miracle of nature and human, human, you know, ability that we don't revere enough, especially because I work in healthcare marketing. So there's the art of medicine and we also, we, the art part is just a throwaway line, but there's, you know, there's the real therapeutic value of, of creative pursuit. And I wish we could, as a society, really value it so we could use it more intentionally for more people. You know, and on this, this concept of, of hitting those, those deep feelings and those stories that were valuable for you, I know in 
your recent album, Free Will and Woman, you touched on a lot of those themes. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I wrote my first album in seven years. Uh, I really walked away from music for quite a while to figure out how to heal after my divorce and develop just some new strategies and tools for myself and parent. And I wasn't sure what my relationship to music would be going forward. Um, I finally felt like writing this album and it was hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the first album I've written from scratch. I've always had thousands of songs in my back catalog, but I wanted this to come from the ground of my being now, who I was now. And it was way harder than I thought because I didn't realize that I really haven't written the same since what happened with my mom happened to me. I've written a little bit safe. I don't think I've gotten as honest. I don't think I've hit a core nerve. I think I was protective of it. And I think writing got gets to that place in me. And I think I, ha- I built some kind of wall I didn't even know was there until I started making this album. And I could hear it in the writing. The writing was sort of safe. It was very, you know, perfunctory wouldn't be the kindest word, but it, it was very capable, good writing, but it wasn't, wasn't as raw and honest as I could be. And it was really hard to work as a 48 year old and peel back different versions of myself. Like how do I not write hands 2.0 or you're meant for me 2.0? How do I find something that's new and innovative that isn't just reactionary and trying to be new and innovative? Cause nothing sounds worse than that, you know, contrivance. How do you find genuinely new territory that you can't fake. I do see why middle-aged artists do a crap ton of drugs because it would just be so much easier to circumnavigate the psychological shit show that it was to come to a new place, like within myself. (laughs) Um, I get it. So I'm really proud of this album because I feel like I was able to start to bring together all the different styles of music. Like it has country leanings, it has folk leanings, it has pop and rock leanings, and then kind of a new soul sound that I haven't been able to bring across before. But it really is me now. It is empowered. It's a 48-year-old woman, you know, which you don't get to see many of us in the music business. And getting to enjoy the fruit of a tremendous amount of labor in my life and be like, I'm proud of who I am. I am proud of, of the music I'm writing. I'm singing at my apex when that didn't have to have happened. I'm writing at my apex when that didn't have to have happened. And so getting to see all the difficult psychological work of a lifetime, you know, all these tragedies that happened pay off and be able to have an actual physical product that kind of embodies that is really trippy. I mean, who, who gets to do that? So for me, I'm really proud and I'm really proud of the music and the, it was an incredible fist fight to get there. Uh, and congratulations on it. I mean, what you're describing, it really reminds me of what you said at the beginning of that, that faith that the tide's going to come back in, you know, this idea that you're sort of, as you're describing, like even at a point where you really don't have to dig deep at this point, quite frankly, like, I think you have enough people who would enjoy what you do that, like you said, you could, yeah, man, I want to say like hands 2.0, but you, you could probably do that. And there'd be enough people who would want to hear it. And so it's incredibly brave that you're pushing the envelope and then sharing it. And that I think, you know, definitely in addition to, you know, appreciating these kinds of conversations that you're willing to come out there and talk to people about it because people like hearing the music will feel it, but now you're articulating it. And I, you know, my hope is like, then people will be like, okay, you know, I, maybe I can do that too, you know? 
It's so worth it. It really is to work through the really painful, narrow, you know, our narrow places to push through um, and get that transformation. And it's amazing how it always does does seem so dark and so hopeless, you know, and then there you are on the other side. Um, so definitely would encourage people just to keep keep fighting. Don't settle. Don't settle for a life that's unhappy. Like fight for that happiness. Like if you fight for a job, why not fight for your happiness? It's way better. <laughs> it's way better thing to fight for. Well, Jude, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, it's great to have a chance to talk with you. And uh, I learned a lot. I think everybody's going to learn a lot from listening to your mental health journey and the things that you've come up with. And so thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. It's nice talking to you. So there it is, Jewel talking about the concept of emotional impermanence and how the tide always comes back in. Now, there's so much to take away from the conversation with Jewel, but one thing I want to focus on was something Jewel said towards the end of the conversation, which is that all of our hearts are destined to be broken. One of the most difficult aspects of our mental health journey is that it is often not linear. We don't just, in a slow, steady and consistent manner, become more capable of finding joy, managing depression or anxiety, resisting the temptation of addictive behaviors, and learning better to connect with others. It can often be a very painful and confusing journey that has so many ups and downs. And we often make that journey far worse by holding ourselves to this magical linear standard where we just continually improve our mental health and relationships. We compare ourselves negatively to this standard and feel even worse about ourselves, which can lead us to the idea that our emotional, behavioral, or social struggles are going to continue forever, and there's no hope. But this is where Jules' concept of emotional impermanence is so important. If we recognize that our mental health journey is not linear, and we're curious rather than critical about our struggles, we may not always be feeling better, but we will more often than not be learning about ourselves. And then rather than constantly feeling hopeless and defeated because we are not meeting an arbitrary, perfectionistic standard, we'll remember that the tide always comes back in, and that we we can continue to grow and learn on our mental health journey. I want to thank Jewel for this wonderful conversation and Alex Von Plato of Publicis for her thoughts on this discussion. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. This month's episodes of Going There focus on depression and are specially presented by Publicis Health, the world's leading healthcare communications network. Publicis Health envisions a world where people are equipped and motivated to take control of their health, and they believe there is no health without mental health. To learn more about Publicis Health's mental health initiative, visit www.publicishealth.com. That's www.publicishealth.com slash mental dash health. I also want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.